0: Well, today we're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's something most Christians throughout, Christri- throughout history and throughout the world have done. It's something different churches have built up different habits and traditions around. And if you're a Christian and if you've been part of different churches, you might have experienced this. Uh, there are different names that we call this meal. Uh, there are different ways we physically participate in this. There's also some disagreements, some different understandings as to what the Lord's Supper is, what it means, and what it does. And while there are lots of questions, for most Christians, eating and drinking this meal is a significant part of being Christian. For most churches, it's considered an important experience. Today, we're not going to answer all the questions you might have about the Lord's Supper, Uh, You might have some questions, might be a good conversation to have over morning tea and lunch. Today we're looking at the Lord's Supper because that's where we're up to in our series in Mark's Gospel. And we're going to see today Jesus eating two meals, two meals he uses to explain the cross, explain his coming death. And one of these meals is what becomes the foundation, the basis of the Lord's Supper. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look and listen closely to what Jesus does and says during these meals so we might know Jesus, understand his death on a cross and also so as we share in the Lord's Supper later, we'll do it understanding, knowing, trusting, uh, loving Jesus. Now we're picking things up, Mark 14 picks things up two days before Jesus' crucifixion. So it's the Wednesday of that week. But Mark doesn't say it was a Wednesday, not only because I don't think they call it Wednesday, but also there's something more important about the name of the day. There's something more important about this week. This is the week of the Passover, an annual Jewish festival which celebrated and remembered how God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. This festival goes right back to the days of Moses. And that's going to become significant later on. But whilst people were getting everything prepared for the festival, the Jewish leaders, you'd think they should have their minds on this festival. Instead, they're putting their energy conspiring to get rid of Jesus. So have a look there at verse 1, Mark 14 and verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Why don't they want to arrest Jesus during the festival? Well, we've seen over the last few weeks, Jesus is pretty popular the crowd appreciates how he shows up the hypocrisy of the leaders. Some in that crowd might even think he's king, that maybe like Moses, God has raised up this bloke to free Israel, not from slavery in Egypt, but from Roman occupation. And so the Jewish religious leaders are thinking, maybe Passover, maybe this Celebration of God freeing people from slavery and oppression, maybe that's not the time to kill, or sorry, to arrest someone who people see as a, as a liberator. So they continue their conspiracy. Uh, whilst the leaders are in Jerusalem conspiring, uh, Jesus is staying in Bethany, a town on the Mount of Olives. And whilst he's in Bethany, we meet a woman who's the opposite of the religious leaders. Instead of wanting to get rid of Jesus, she worships him. She shows her absolute devotion to Jesus. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head some of those present were saying indignantly to one another why this waste of perfume it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly leave her alone said jesus why are you bothering her she has done a beautiful thing to me the poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. For some people, cut flowers make no sense. I don't know where you stand on cut flowers. Maybe you're a big fan of them, but for some people they make no sense. They cost a lot of money. And in the Queensland summer, they don't last very long. Logic might say they're a waste of money. There is much better ways for you to spend, to invest, to use your money. But why do we buy flowers? Because love says something different. We're not told who rebuked this woman. But their response to this woman's extravagant love, pouring out a year's wages, you pick whatever your wage is, that's how much it was, pouring it out on Jesus' head. And they rebuke her. It makes you wonder if some at that table would be better off with the religious leaders. They don't have love for Jesus. Jesus. This woman's lavish devotion to Jesus, it's a challenge to us, isn't it? Would you give something worth a year's wages? Jesus commands us, what's he commands us? To take up our cross and follow him. To deny ourselves. Jesus called to deny ourselves. At the very least, that's got to impact our wallet, doesn't it? Christians don't live in extravagant luxury. Christians show extravagant generosity. This week I've been bombarded, you might have been too, by advertising about Black Friday. I don't know why it's become an Australian thing, but lots of people have been telling me I need to spend up big to buy something new and something else new and something. The question Christians should be asking when you get that advertising isn't how good is this deal, but does spending money in this way show my love for Jesus? And it might. But it might not. We spend our money differently because of Jesus. This passage is meant to challenge our love of money and wealth. But sadly, uh, this passage has sometimes been used to do the exact opposite. I've often heard people, Christian people, quote verse 7, the poor you will always have among you. And they make Jesus sound harsh and callous and dismissive of poverty these words are used to mock the work of charities why bother the poor you'll always have with you or to critique communities gathering together getting together to help those who are poor through the government now you hear these words of jesus and if you interpret them that way it doesn't sound like jesus does it there will always be poor people why bother caring for them That doesn't sound like the same Jesus who told a rich man to sell everything and give to the poor. So what's going on? Jesus changed who he was a few days ago. Now, Jesus isn't saying we should be stingy and uncaring to those who are poor. In fact, the very words he says mean the opposite. He's quoting the beginning of a Jewish law which says, there will always be poor people in the land, so what do you do? Therefore I command you to be open-handed, generous toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus isn't being callous, he's commanding generosity. It's important to clear up this misunderstanding because people make a mockery of Jesus when they twist his words. But that's actually not the main point, is it? The main point is this woman loves Jesus. And she's preparing his body for burial. Now, that's a bit strange, isn't it? Why is she doing it? He's not dead yet. It's a bit weird. Now, she doesn't know what she's doing, but in a few days' time, this will make sense. There's not going to be time to anoint Jesus' body After he dies, he's going to be taken down off the cross and given a quick burial. That act in Jewish culture seems to dishonor Jesus by dishonoring his body, by burying his body so quickly. But it's not, is it? Because already on the Wednesday, his body has been prepared for burial. There's no dishonor for Jesus because of this woman, this precious woman. Uh, This woman's anointing also points to that Sunday morning when it's again women who will go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, but he will not be there. And there's actually a hint of this in what we're reading today, because here's Jesus talking about his burial, the worst news you could imagine. But then in verse 9, he says, the gospel. There's going to be good news preached. Yes, Jesus will be buried, but it's not going to be the end. Uh, this woman, it'd be it'd great to know her name, this woman, this anonymous woman, stands out at this moment. She's like the widow, also an anonymous woman, who gave her last couple of coins to the temple. This woman gives everything to Jesus because of her great love. She stands out against the stingy people at that meal, and especially against Judas. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We're not told what motivates Judas, but the mention of money suggests at least in part the motivation is greed. The woman lavishes generosity. Judas betrays in greed. Now, at this stage of the week, this Wednesday, it seems like the enemies are in control, doesn't it? In Jerusalem, the leaders are conspiring, but now even one of Jesus' own has joined them. But as the next day dawns, we see Jesus is in control, and his death is the start of something new. Now, remember back at the start of chapter 14, uh, we were reminded this is the week leading up to the Passover. Well, now it's Thursday, the day the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Quick explanation of the Passover. What's Passover? It's an annual festival celebrating God's rescue of his people from Egypt. There are two key parts of the Passover meal. Uh, Just like in Egypt, a lamb is killed and eaten. Uh, Back in Egypt, the blood of that lamb was painted on the doorposts of a house. It was a sign marking out a household to be spared from God's judgment. So there's the lamb and its blood. The the second part is the bread made without yeast. Uh, Why no yeast? There's actually lots of symbolism, but just practically, this meal was eaten in a hurry. At any moment, they didn't know when, but at any moment, God's judgment and salvation would come, so they'd have to be ready to leave. So there's no time to put yeast in the bread and wait for it to rise. So there's the lamb and there's unleavened bread, unyeasted bread. That's the festival. But this year, with this Passover, the disciples have noticed a problem. No one's organised. Tradition said the Passover was celebrated in Jerusalem, but they haven't organised a place to have the meal and there's no lamb. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Passover. The disciples aren't prepared, but Jesus is. Verse 13. So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room that where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upstairs room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Jesus has prepared and provided. He is organised. He's prepared and provided for his disciples. He's prepared a place. Maybe he'll prepare a lamb for sacrifice. Because through these Strange instructions, following a bloat, carrying a jar of water that seems like a spy movie kind of plot. The point is, Jesus is in control. He's prepared. He is organized. Nothing catches him by surprise. Not even Judas's betrayal. Verse seventeen. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were while they were reclining at the table eating, he said. Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. When your enemies conspire against you, that's one thing. It's completely another when it's one of your friends. Stabbed in the back by someone you shared your life and meals with. But this is the thing about how God works, isn't it? Whilst this is horrific... Betrayal, especially when we've just seen such lavish devotion of Jesus. Whilst it's a horrible betrayal, it's also the will of God. Jesus is in control of the situation. There's no surprises. And why are there no surprises? Because what's going to happen? Jesus' death isn't meaningless. His death is the start of something new. And Jesus uses the Passover meal to explain this. The Passover meal has always been about God's rescue, about God's salvation. But on this night, Jesus reinterprets and reapplies this meal to be about a new and bigger salvation God is bringing. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Uh, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus takes uh, two parts of the Passover meal, bread and a cup, and he fills them With new meaning. Uh, Do you notice he doesn't say much about the bread? He doesn't really explain what he means. Uh, What's going on there? What's going on with the bread? Well, first, uh, Jesus is saying he's going to die. In some way, he doesn't explain how. In some way, his death, his body is something the disciples can receive. His death will be for them. Uh, With the cup, he, he fills out the meaning a bit more. He says the cup, the wine, is the blood of the covenant. Now, what's this mean? What's a covenant? A covenant is a solemn promise, a promise that creates and shapes a relationship, a relationship that is ongoing. Covenants are not the same as contracts. There are some similarities. When you sign a contract, it's a solemn promise, isn't it? you got to mean what you say. And a contract relates some kind of relationship. So, for example, when you get a job, you sign an employment contract. That contract creates a relationship between an employer and an employee. But the difference between a contract and a covenant is a contract has an end, a way to finish the relationship. So either it's a fixed term and when the contract's up, well, it's over, or you give three months' notice. And the point is, though, a contract can end. And as long as you follow the process of the contract, well, that's okay. There's, there's no problem ending a contract as long as you follow all the terms. Covenants don't have an end. You can't end a covenant. You can break it and you can destroy it. That's what a covenant is, a solemn promise that creates a relationship. And throughout history, recorded in the Bible, God has made a number of covenants with his people. A big one is the covenant with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham and it shaped their relationship. God would be the God of Abraham and the God of his descendants. And Abraham's descendants would be the people of God. That's the relationship that is created by the covenant, by God's promise. But what's this language of blood of the covenant? Well, in the ancient world, you didn't sign a contract. You don't sign a covenant. You sealed it with a sacrifice. Jesus is saying his blood will seal this covenant, a covenant which makes a new relationship between God and, did you hear the word, many people. He will pour out, his blood will be for many people. His covenant will be for many people. So what's the nature of this covenant, the new relationship between God and many people? Well, Jesus is saying he's going to fulfill the promise of Jeremiah 31. Uh, through Jeremiah, God says he's going to make a new covenant with his people. And have a listen. We're going to read it now. These are the results of the covenant. Covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. Uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. The next slide's a bit smaller. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So what's God promising this new covenant, this new relationship will be what's going to change people's hearts He'll change people from the inside out. This covenant is a promise of God to forgive sinners. And because people will be forgiven and changed from the inside, it's a covenant that makes a personal relationship between God and his people. We can know God, not just know about him, not just be taught about him, but know God personally. So that's covenant covenant. Let's go back to that upstairs room. What does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup? To take God, sorry, to take Christ's body and drink the blood of the covenant. Well, eating the covenant meal is how you participate in the covenant. Jesus is saying, you don't sign a contract with Him, no, but by eating and drinking this meal, then His death, His body is for you. His blood will make a new covenant between you and God. And that means that all the blessings of that covenant, forgiveness, a new heart, a relationship with God, they all will be given to those who eat and drink this meal. And these promises are guaranteed by the promise of verse 25. It's slightly cryptic language. People debate whether drinking new wine in the kingdom of God is is Jesus thinking about his resurrection or his ascension or his return. But regardless of the event, Jesus is both saying his body will really die. He will really die, but death will not be the end. He's going to be raised from the dead physically. You can't drink of this cup, the fruit of the vine, unless you've got a physical body to do the drinking. Jesus is saying, verse 25, the grave will not have the last word for him. And when Jesus rises, he's going to be king. The religious leaders, the betrayers will not win. The kingdom of God wins. And that's what these two meals are all about. Because Jesus is God's king, he's worthy of our devotion and love. And because he dies for his people, he's worthy of our trust and faith. Now, at the start, I mentioned the Lord's Supper. What's the link between the Lord's Supper that Christians participate in and the Passover, and particularly the Passover that Jesus shared that night with his disciples and filled with this new meaning? Because in Mark's account, there's nothing to say Christians should do something similar. If we only had Mark's account, it'd be a bit hard to argue that Christians should have any kind of meal like Jesus did. But if you look at Luke's record and 1 Corinthians 11, it's clear this is something Jesus wants his people to continue. It's also pretty clear Jesus didn't want his followers to celebrate Passover that this supper is different from Passover. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, that's homework for this afternoon, you read it, it, it's not the Passover, it's not the annual feast of Passover that they're having, it's something similar but different, it's the Lord's Supper, that's what um, Paul calls it. So what's going on when we share in the Lord's Supper? Well, just like the disciples in the upper room, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. It's not just a memorial meal. It's not like Anzac Day. What happens on Anzac Day? Well, we remember those who died in war. The Lord's Supper is not a remembrance. It's a covenantal meal. We participate in the Lord Jesus and in the covenant that he has made between God and us. So what happens as we eat and drink? Well, yes, we remember what Jesus did. But we also participate in the reality of the covenant. We receive the benefits of the covenant. A relationship with God, knowing God, sins forgiven, a changed heart. And as we eat the Lord's Supper, eat and drink, we look back, we look now, and we look for's. We look back at what Jesus did for his people in his death and resurrection, and we identify with the Lord Jesus, we died to sin upon the cross. We, we rise with Jesus in his resurrection. We look now to the forgiveness we've received and we reflect on how Jesus is changing us as his people and we look forward to when Jesus will return. Though, it's not the bare act of eating itself that does this. It's not just that, oh, if anyone who eats this food, then instantly they're part of God's covenant family. No, in 1 Corinthians 11, we find it's possible to eat and drink in a sinful way. It's not the act of chewing and swallowing that makes this a covenant meal. It's eating and drinking with faith, trusting in Jesus, submitting to him as king. So we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper now, And so the way for us to respond to what God's said to us in his word is to receive God's extravagant grace. You think that lady poured out something valuable. Think about Jesus' blood. And to receive by faith the body of Jesus and his blood, which is poured out as a ransom for many.